Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast, your home for open and thought-provoking conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators on their technologies for building greener and smarter cities. Hi everyone, I'm Nadine Khala and welcome to a brand new episode of the Internet of Nature podcast. I'm so glad you're here. This week, I'm very excited to introduce you to Professor Menno Schilthuizen. Menno and I have gotten the opportunity to collaborate a little bit over the last couple of years. I first met him in 2018 after his wildly popular book, Darwin Comes to Town, came out. The book has since been translated into 13 languages and won the Jan Wolkers Prize for Best Nature Writing in the Netherlands. I think I devoured that book in a matter of days, and I'd highly recommend it to any of you listening. When he's not writing, Menno is a biologist who explores how humans affect the ecology and evolution of wild animals and plants in urbanized landscapes. He is a senior researcher at the Naturalis Biodiversity Center and also a professor of evolution and biodiversity at Leiden University. With his own organization, Taxon Expeditions, he also takes the general public on real scientific expeditions, both in nature and natural environments. Menno is also a guest lecturer in the two-week intensive online course that I co-organize with the University of Amsterdam every January. It's called the Anthropocene, Ecologies, Tensions, Futures. If this is of interest to any of you, the applications are now open. But in all seriousness, Menno has been a big inspiration to me, not only as a seasoned researcher, but also for his long career in popularizing science through books, articles, podcasts, and TV. He's able to explain complex evolutionary theories in a way the public can not only understand, but actually take action to protect the wildlife habitats we do have left in the world. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Menno. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Perhaps first to kick us off, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Mm -hmm, Sure. Um, my name is Menno Schildhuizen. I am an evolutionary biologist uh, and an ecologist. Um, I work at uh, the Netherlands Natural History Museum, Naturalis, as a researcher um, and also as a professor at Leiden University. And in addition, I'm, I'm quite active as a science popularizing, popularizer. So I write books and I give lectures uh, mostly on um, on urban nature and especially urban evolution. And I think your most some some of the listeners might know you from your most recent book, Darwin Comes to Town, um, mm-hmm. which I think was quite a success. It, it, I think it was. Yes, yes. Thank yeah. you for saying that. I think it's 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 uh, yeah, it's been translated in many languages, and it's I'm still receiving emails regularly from from readers who are curious or complimentary or in some other way want to reach out to me. So I think that's a measure of success, yes. Absolutely, yeah. So maybe for those uh, that haven't read it yet, maybe you could share a little bit about what Darwin Comes to Town is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Darwin Comes to Town is a book which which deals with the way the urban ecosystem is not only being assembled ecologically, but also how it is, uh, how the species in it are evolving, are rapidly changing genetically um, in response to this this completely different set of conditions that we humans create in that urban ecosystem. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize that evolution is a process that can sometimes also um, happen very quickly. 
um, and that many wild species of animals and plants that live with us in our cities are rapidly evolving and adapting to these new conditions that are available in cities. And I think it's interesting, one of the things that you mentioned, I think, right in the introduction of the book is this idea that, um, you know, Char Charles Darwin, he stipulated that, you know, evolution was not something that we could ever see with our own eyes. Mm -hmm. And what you actually show, which, of course, inspired the title of the book as well, is that this is very much something that we're seeing just even in a number of generations, even though these generations may be shorter for some species, we are actually seeing this evolution, whether it's in the coloring of, of feathers or in how this is, I think, is fascinating, um, how large and how heavy certain seeds are so that they fall closer to where their, 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 their parent was so that they can have a, a larger chance of establishing. What, what for you has been um, the example of urban evolution that people come back on the most, the one that, that really kind of interests them the most? Hmm. Um, good question. There's a couple that seem to speak to the imagination. Mm. Um, one is um, the fact that uh, fish in, in freshwater system in, in coastal cities all over the world are um, rapidly adapting to extremely high levels of chemical pollution. Um, uh, PCBs, for example, in, in industrial areas, in, in ports of cities. Mm. Um, are still these are very persistent chemicals that can even though they're being phased or have been phased out for for a while now they're still in the sediments in very high concentrations and we know that these these things have really detrimental effects on the development of many animals um, and yet there are certain fish which seem to have evolved changes in their biochemistry which allow them to to thrive under conditions of very high pollution um, of course, this is not true for all species. It's, uh, that, I think that is also something that a lot of people um, wonder about, whether this, this rapid evolution means that you know, and, and anything can, can adapt to whatever we throw at them. That's certainly not the case. But this is, I think, a very good example of a species that has been able to survive in the face of, of really fatal, normally fatal levels of pollution. Mm. Yeah. Thanks to thanks to evolution, thanks to being able to adapt to those to those right. things. Right. Right. Yeah, that they're that they're able to not just survive but perhaps even thrive in those new environments. But that brings me exactly to my next thought, which is I've heard you say in an interview before that, you know, urban evolution is not it's not necessarily bad it's not necessarily good but it but it just is so can you can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that because this is something that i feel like brings up quite an emotional response in people mm -hmm. because of course some people will say no 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 we have to protect everything as is because you know animals shouldn't be evolving um but it is happening yeah yeah that it's it's um it's also surprising to me that that uh, often people respond to my book with with uh, words or sentences that include the word optimistic or mm. uh, or hopeful, uh, which is not really the, the the terms I had in mind when I was writing it. I come from a background of studying evolution in in, in the wild, um, and like you said, I've always been uh, frustrated by the fact that we hardly ever can observe evolution taking place in the field. Mm. Like Darwin said, it's you. you you cannot really see it happening. Um, so that's why I've always been looking for situations where you can see it happening, where the, the, 
the selection pressure, the pressure to adapt is, is so heavy, so great that evolution can proceed very fast and that you can actually see it taking place in front of your own, your own evolutionary biologist eyes. And I, became, I got to realize that you, usually conditions where humans change the environment are so drastic that rapid evolution takes place there. So in cities, all these things come together. So cities are really the places where we can study evolution because it's happening so fast. It's happening in unexpected ways and it's happening right in front of our eyes. And while I think a lot of my readers also agree that that's fascinating, they also um, often respond with, like I said, with, with saying, you know, it's a, it's a very optimistic book because we always hear about um, environmental degradation when, whenever humans are uh, affecting the environment. Um, and now we hear that that species are finding ways to survive and finding and sometimes even new species are evolving. So so this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing that that we are changing the environment. And as you know, I'm, I'm a sort of fundamental biologist. Good and bad don't really exist outside of the mm. realm of, of, of human emotions. It's uh, um, it just happens. Uh, an environmental change takes place because of us and and uh, the response of the genetic systems of these animals and plants that are affected is to to change to adapt because of natural selection and in fact natural selection i mean adaptation sounds as if it's a uh, a nice thing but of course we have to realize that for natural selection especially for very fast natural selection to take place um you need a lot of death uh, a lot of Animals and plant, individual animals and plants that are not perfectly adapted will have to will have to disappear, for the few that are better adapted to survive and to have offspring. Um, right. So I, I think it's also important to realize that we have this this really fast evolution in cities, thanks to the fact that so many uh, animals and plants, individual animals and plants, uh, are are dying in in cities and. In fact, when you when you look at it that way, then you realize that very fast evolution and extinction are actually very close together. Because for very fast evolution, you need that only a small fraction of the population survives, which happen to have just the right genetic constitution. And once that fraction becomes zero, you have extinction. So it's it's very close together, even though it seems like the opposite. Yeah, yeah. So what what do you say to people? Um, that that read your book and feel that way and and want to do things to ha perhaps you know help all the other species that we share our cities with mm -hmm. um well one thing that i think that i often say that that i think is important to realize is that um of that that you know cities are extremely rich in in biodiversity at least much much richer than we would think they are um and there are a few species in cities that that can really live in the harsh city center where there is no vegetation at all you can think of uh, city pigeons peregrine falcons swifts those are rats um, those are all animals that um, that don't need any vegetation to survive they they can i mean peregrine falcons and swifts and and city pigeons they, those are all species yeah. that are pre-adapted so they can nest on on rocky ledges and they can also nest on buildings but the majority of the biodiversity that you find in the city actually needs some form of vegetation some some form of soil uh, and and uh, vegetation growing on that soil even if it's very small pockets or 
you know, there's little corners of just a, a few decimeters wide. Um, and I need, think we need to realize that as much, the, the more we can integrate sort of semi-natural environments in, in the urban environment, in our city, the greater the biodiversity will be and the more nature inclusive our city is going to be. And we tend to think of parks, but it doesn't really have to be parks. And any small patch of soil where we allow weeds mm. to grow um, is, is beneficial to quite a large number of organisms. So basically the, the take home message is that we, if we want cities to be rich in nature, we have to allow them to become a little bit more messy than, right. than maybe we would like. Right, right. I know we hear a lot when you, when you, you know, any kind of first year ecology class will kind of take you through that one of the primary reasons why we're losing so much biodiversity on a, on a global scale is due to habitat loss and also habitat fragmentation, which you could mm -hmm. argue is kind of the, the same kind of pressure that a lot of urban species are going through that, you know, there may be a park here and there, but, you know, in order to travel from one park to the other is, you know, threatening to their lives to be able to make it there that and, and would they even know to go there would you say one of the key you know if we're going to increase the amount of greenery that we have in cities should we focus less on creating new new parks or perhaps um, increasing the size of existing parks and more put the focus on connecting the natural spaces that we do have would that be beneficial um i think it would be but maybe not for for the reason that you mentioned maybe not to to reduce fragmentation um i perhaps because of my focus on small organisms uh, i think fragmentation at least at the scale of which we're talking about it is is a bit overrated in 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 its importance for for biodiversity conservation mm -hmm. um and what i mean by that is that um fragments um or let's say that yeah the, the the fragmentation that you see in in cities the the fragments are still usually tens of meters or hundreds of meters across which indeed is too small for many large animals to survive for for birds and larger mammals for them this fragmentation is really problem and the, and the creating corridors could be beneficial but I think we, we tend to lose sight of the fact that urban biodiversity consists only for a very small fraction of these birds and mammals yeah. and for a much larger fraction um, of insects and snails and, and wood lice and small organisms to whom a park of 100 meters across is like an entire continent. They, yeah. so, so they don't really suffer from that fragmentation as much. And the majority of species in cities are of the smaller size. So I think, yes, it's important to create bits of, of green spaces um, in between the, the major parks, but not necessarily to connect those parks, but simply to have more patches of vegetation of all scales scattered throughout the city. More greenery overall, really. Yeah. O overall, more greenery, and, and especially the, of the scale, the spatial scale that is smaller than we tend to think of. And, right. you know, like I said, decimeters or meters to many smaller organisms is already enough to establish a, and maintain a population of, right. you know, things, things like springtails and mites and spiders, things we, most ordinary people wouldn't notice, but they're still there and they're, they're the mainstay of the, of the urban ecosystem. And to them, these small patches are actually very important.
Very meaningful, yeah. And I mean, the, the same we could say also about um, the role that dead wood and dead vegetation plays as well, which is something yep. that, you know, we've we've come to, um, you know, want to get rid of as fast as possible, considering, you know, the the less than aesthetic value that they might have in our cities. But, but you argue that these are the primary habitats specifically for a lot of insect biodiversity. So maybe yep. for those that, you know, look at a dead tree and wonder why it's still there, maybe you could just mm -hmm. elaborate a little bit on why that dead tree is specifically so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so a large part of, of the ecosystem, of course, we tend to think of the ecosystem as this classical pyramid of a top predator at the top, and then you have a layer of, of uh, of uh, consumers uh, who feed on on the plants, so you have three or four layers in this pyramid. Um, but we tend to forget that next to this this food pyramid of of you know plants and plant eaters, and then the predators that eat the plant eaters, there's also a huge diversity of uh, organisms that are specialized on feeding on detritus, on dead material. Um, and yeah, you can think of like organisms that eat dead wood, like you say, dead leaves, um, dung, dead animals, uh, even, you know, the hairs of your dog and your, your own skin flakes, they eventually are eaten up by, by mites and by bacteria and by fungi. And that is at least as rich an ecosystem as is in the traditional uh, food pyramid. Um, and they, of course, there are many interconnections between those two parts, but you have sort of the green web and the brown web. And the brown web, which is of all, all these detritus feeders, mm. um, is maintained by detritus. And detritus, so in the in the sort of general general term of dead organic material, um, is very important to maintain in the city as well. And as you say, we tend to remove that. We tend to sweep away dead leaves and to take away branches that fall off trees and Partly because they're they're dangerous, and but mostly because they are considered unsightly and untidy, um, mm -hmm. even though a, a large part of the ecosystem depends on them. So we should learn slowly to to allow these natural elements to main to 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 be maintained in the city, and not to sweep away dead leaves and not to take away uh, dead trees, um, if at all possible. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it goes back to also, you know, if we now I think we're at the point where, you know, it's widely accepted all of the different benefits that greenery can have. But at the same time, we're removing the very function of this this dead material that ends up being fodder for healthy soil. And I think mm -hmm. the vast majority of the time when we look at, you know, trees or vegetation that's having a difficult time, we tend to still, you know, look up towards the crown and think that that's where we're going to find our solutions when, in fact, you know, the answers are in the soil and you know taking away this this free fertilizer material that's there that can increase the quality of soil is actually quite ridiculous when we think about it like that so i think we need yeah. to there's a lot of work that we need to do in terms of um rewilding the green management i suppose in in cities so that it becomes yeah. a better habitat but also you know creates creates better greenery at the end of the day as well mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it's a slow process of course because yeah, there's this whole tradition of of gardening and 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 park management in um, in, in inhabited places. Yeah, um, and it's 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 slowly changing in at some levels. Definitely not at all levels yet. Um, you see it. You see it changing. At at which I, levels do you see it changing? Well, for example, I see um, 
in, in more in, in more general terms, I see that that uh, many municipalities here in the Netherlands, at least, are allowing weeds to grow, uh, mm. which is really something that you know when I when I grew up in the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, that wasn't really done yet. There were one or two municipalities that were really spearheading this, and they were walled okay. it, of course, by botanists, but in it was not a general trend. And now you see that most cities have at least some parts of the of the roadside verges and the parks where they allow wildflowers mm. to uh, to grow up and to and to grow and not that they're not being mown uh, yeah. at a very high frequency. Um, but the same is not yet true, I think, for for dead leaves and dead wood. Um, yeah. a, a bit here and there, especially in the bigger parks and the ones that where where an environmental function has been uh, mm. devoted to these parks. But um, in let's say in the in the regular street, this is of course not done. A, a, bran a branch that falls off a, a street tree is almost always cleared. Yeah. Um, yeah. And dead leaves are are swept up, um, you know, because the street is being used for other for other purposes as well. So, yeah. yeah. We have to yeah. we have to slowly start phasing that out wherever it's possible, I think. But that requires probably several generations of um, of, of greens managers in cities. Well, a large part too that brings me um, a large part too is just raising the awareness amongst the citizens how how important this dead material is. And I know that yeah. you've done a lot of work to uh, organize the taxon expeditions, which are um, you know uh, really just I think people from all walks of life that have, that come to these weeks where I mean I know you've taken to to wild and exotic places, but you've also organized taxon expeditions here in Amsterdam in the Vondelpark as well, right? Which mm -hmm. led to a very interesting discovery. Yeah, yeah. We've done now uh, actually four of those in Amsterdam. So the, the the first one was organized by by Taxon Expeditions itself, our organization. The other three were on invitation from the municipality of Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. um, and they were all um, let's say real scientific expeditions to a small Amsterdam park or a larger Amsterdam park, but in any case, nothing on the scale of the rainforest that we normally go to, um, to show people from the neighborhood how to study those more obscure organisms, insects, spiders, uh, snails, worms, um, to make them aware of how much biodiversity there is actually in those groups and what their requirements are and why it's so important to leave those dead leaves and to, to leave wildflowers and to leave dead wood. Um, and also to show how little we still know about those those kinds of animals. So like you said, in the, in the Amsterdam Vondelpark, we, um, we discovered two new species of insects. And I don't mean new to the city or new to the country, but new to science. So they now have scientific yeah, names. One of them is called, yeah. The one of them is named after the Vondel Park, um, and that is also what we do on our on our expeditions in in you know in really wild places in the tropics and in, in the Mediterranean. But we thought it was important to show that it's also you don't need to travel far away to make those discoveries. You can literally yeah. make or discover new species in your own backyard wherever you are in the world, simply because the number of people that have been studying those groups of organisms of which there are thousands of spe species mm. is so small that there's still a lot of work to do. In the Netherlands, we probably have about 7,000 different species of parasitic wasps alone. Um, and only maybe five people who can identify them in the country. 
So yeah. we've probably only only discovered half of them. The other half are either species that were already discovered in other countries but haven't been found officially in the Netherlands yet, mm. and uh, and partly indeed new species that simply nobody has had the time to describe and to give a scientific name yet. Yeah. And I think that's where the role of uh, community science and citizen science really comes into play as well, because um, you know if there's only five people in all of the Netherlands that can identify those 7,000 different species of wasps, um, you you re we really need to kind of make this step towards educating the public to get involved within this process, mm -hmm. because the biodiversity that we still have to chart and track and map is 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 so much that we still have to yep. discover. And um, I know within that, technology can really be an important tool to make that happen. Um, we've talked briefly about uh, this app called Snail Snap, which mm -hmm. I think um, uh, you and some of the rest of the team at, at Naturalis in Naida have been involved with as well. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, Snail Snap was um, a very simple app, which basically just took pictures of snails. It allowed you to take a picture of a, of a garden snail. Um, and garden snails come in all kinds of uh, color forms, uh, genetically based forms of shells with a different color. Mm. Um, and we know that these colors depend on many things and they are also evolving quite rapidly, partly because of the temperature. So the, the higher the temperature okay. in the environment, the, the lighter the shell color is. Um, because it reflects more light and it's more comfortable for them? Yeah, because it reflects the heat radiation of the sun more mm -hmm. effectively. And during the hottest day of the year, the snail will remain cooler inside a pale shell than inside a dark shell. It's just like okay. when you're sitting, when you're, when you're wearing light clothes or when you're sitting in a white car, you, you, you stay a little bit cooler than when you're wearing dark clothes or sitting in a dark car. We could um, probably take some, some architecture lessons from snails. Yeah, also. Yes. Yeah, yeah I guess. Yeah. Um, and so our expectation was that in the urban heat island, because in the city, of course, on top of the regular climate change, we also have the, the urban heat island, which makes it several degrees centigrade warmer in the city center compared to the, the, the countryside at the same time. Right. Um, so we were, we were expecting that these snails in the city center are even lighter than outside of the city center. And we were able to, to show this with the, with the citizen science project using the using these, the snail snap app. Um, so indeed, um, these snails are evolving a, an even lighter shell color in the city center, probably as a result of this urban, um, urban heat island. Um, so that was an app to detect urban evolution. Um, and to come back to this, this idea about urban biodiversity, many species that we still haven't uh, discovered yet, they are also um, great advancements now in, in apps that use, use artificial intelligence to recognize species and to allow non-specialist citizen scientists to become yeah. specialists, um, at least for the, for the types of organisms that, for which the, uh, the AI algorithm has been properly trained. Right. Um, and for the Netherlands, I think a very good one is uh, Ops Identify, which is an, an app that um, allows you to identify based on photographs, I think more than half of the Dutch species. And it works pretty good, pretty well. Oh, okay. um, it's been trained with all the, all the pictures that, that people have already uploaded 
to right. uh, vineming.nl, which is a citizen science platform for nature observations, but similar to iNaturalist, but then for works the same way, I guess, but it's, uh, mm. it's focused on uh, on the Netherlands and, and surrounding countries. Um, and with contrary to expectation, using this artificial intelligence-based um, uh, identifications, right. people are becoming interested in some groups that normally wouldn't have been accessible to them, groups of organisms, I mean. Um, so with the app, you can you can identify all kinds of beetles and flies and and smaller insects, spiders, uh, smaller insects and other other invertebrate animals that normally you would need, uh, you know, a whole library of field guides for and a microscope and a lot of patience and experience right. before you were could call yourself an, an, an expert. And once you of course, you you can you can use the app and the names that you get from the app, the, the identification names uh, as a basis to start getting interested in this group and becoming a specialist yourself. Um, so I'm, I'm really hoping that using these apps, we can, because like you, you said just now, we have so many, so many species that still need attention and so few specialists working on them. Um, at the same time, we see that there's a lot of interest in nature, a lot of talent also for identifying species. Mm. There are thousands of people in the Netherlands who are expert bird identifiers. They can really separate all those little brown jobs as we call them these little yeah. brown birds that all seem identical and they know exactly how to separate them and how to tell one from the other but we don't really need more people working on birds <laughs> it's uh, yeah. at least in terms of uncovering biodiversity birds are mm. pretty well covered we need people working on parasitic wasps and on yeah. little flies yeah. and the talent you need is the same so if you can using an app for example you can you can start diverting some of that talent away from from the more obvious animals or plants mm. towards the ones that really need attention, then I think that would be a, a really great success for, for this kind of technology-based citizen science. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you have any, um, any anecdotes of maybe someone who's come on a taxon expedition, someone, or maybe even someone who wasn't necessarily, you know, an expert in nature, or perhaps not even a huge nature lover who kind of through the use of these apps, you know, has kind of become somewhat of a uh, of a nature advocate. Um, well, we don't always keep track, of course, of the people, um, so I wouldn't be able to say specifically because of the use of the app. But yes, we have had several participants. We had actually we had on one of our foreign trips to to Borneo, we had um, um, uh, somebody from Britain. Uh, actually a pest exterminator, somebody whose work it was to wow. to destroy wasp nests. Um, and he um, he was there with his son and they both were got very interested in, in the science. Of course, they were interested in the science already, of mm. course, otherwise they wouldn't have joined, but they were really stimulated by, not so much by the apps, but more by working together for 10 days with international yeah. experts uh, who are very passionate about their field. And they in fact, this this guy took up a biology study, he gave up his pest control business, and went back to university, and is now a biologist. Wow. So, um, apparently, because of the course, the, the the field trip he did with us. So that is also a sort of that's really cool, sort of unexpected yeah. success. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. From uh, insect killer to insect academic. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, 
That's really interesting. Do you, have you ever seen any uh, any pushback? I mean, with 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 all of your work, um, you know, any of the the tech driven citizen science work, anybody who's given quite some pushback, you know, from the traditional botanists um, uh, or anyone else that says, you know, um, you know, why do we have to use technology for this? Mm-hmm. Why not yeah, just I lug do. around your 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 mm-hmm. you know your botany books and your ID books? You know, why is this necessary? This is taking away yeah. from something. Yeah, I actually I of, of course do both. I use I use the apps and I also use DNA. That's another technology uh, mm-hmm. driven advancement that we see now. Uh, nearly portable DNA sequencing machines that allow you to read yeah. the DNA of a species and identify them in that way. Um, but I also use traditional methods. I, I I collect and I mount specimens and I look at them through a microscope and I use my identification keys in in multiple languages to try to get them from literature sometimes of more than a century old to mm. try to get get names on them um, and there is I do notice that in the in the community of um, these platforms like iNaturalist or Observado or in the Netherlands uh, vineending.nl um, there there is a bit of a there are, of course there are different camps there's People who who say, well, one good example is is an iNaturalist, for example. Um, iNaturalist um, uh, will uh, will gather identifications of a of a picture taken by somebody from the community of participants, and as soon as you have three people who agree on the identity of a certain species, um, it is considered research grade. It's considered properly identified and available for. Mm-hmm being used in research projects. Um, but of course, you know, if, if somebody, if an ex, let's say, an, if a non-expert says it's this species and two more people sort of copy that identification, then it's also research grade, even though it could be a wrong identification to begin with. Right. Um, and in Observado, we only, we only use experts as validators. So only when an expert has, has vetted an identification an expert for that group, for that group of mm. organisms, then it is allowed to to be used for for research projects, um, and so that's yeah that is also. But of course, the number of validators, number of experts is is small, especially yeah. for those difficult groups, and w- especially with these apps, the number of pictures that are flowing in is is growing exponentially, and the expertise is actually only decreasing. Yeah. So at some point, probably we're going to have to rely on the AI right. identification and not have the human uh, mm-hmm. layer in between. And some people are very com- comfortable with that, of course. So mm. they say, yeah, everything should have been should be looked at by a by a specialist before we accept an identification, before we start using it as data for drawing distribution maps, for example. Mm. Um, but I guess at some point, the number of data flowing in is going to overwhelm these yeah. human experts and then we will have to use yeah a technology-based solution yeah a little bit of the age-old question you know when when is when is it quality over quantity and when is it quantity mm-hmm. over quality yeah. yeah i think that's that's in general kind of with a lot of these you know um crowdsourced data approaches um i know that's definitely been the case when it comes to doing you know crowdsourced tree inventories for example where you have mm-hmm. citizens that you know uh come together 
to basically make a tree map of their city and they you know they measure the the size of the tree but also they identify what species it is so that you know both citizens and the city can have an idea of where where all these trees are um but that was the you know they they, they did this review of all these crowdsourced tree inventories this study that the usda forest service did a couple of years back and um, the data quality across, you know, the vast majority of, I think, these 10 different tree attributes that they looked at were more or less accurate with a certain error margin, except the, I, the species identification thing was was all over the map. You know, oh, yeah? they were like they were okay. lucky if it was like even within the same genus of the, okay. of the tree. So that was yeah. um, it was an interesting study because it um, kind of gives a little bit of an evidence based approach to, you know, what you know, what are what are the tree attributes in this case that you know we can trust citizens uh, to measure? Or trust is maybe not necessarily the right word, but at least get you know get the data that we that we need it because there's collecting data and then there's collecting data that we can actually then act upon. And obviously yeah. that data needs to be accurate and reliable to be able to do that. And the same goes for all of this fauna data as well. How does how does snail snap work? Is that um, AI based with it with an expert or is that only expert opinion based? It was uh, only expert opinion based. We have we mm -hmm. have been working on an AI based uh, artificial intelligence based algorithm to recognize the different color morphs of the snails, right? Um, which works up to a certain level. But I think the the for example to separate between pink snails and yellow snails is almost almost impossible because it mm. depends very much on the on the background color and on the on the camera used and. But again, we have the, the human validators have the same problem. So yeah. um, the the study we did used human validators to um, to sort of separate out all the pictures that were submitted into different color morphs, color forms, yeah. and that was we had about ten thousand pictures, so that was manageable. But ideally, per, of per, course, per we, type or across this the was whole across the whole so the whole data set yeah. was ten thousand snails, right? Right. Um, so that was manageable, but um, and it's it's still running. So the data are are still being collected, um, not really exponentially. I think it's sort of the same every year. The number of number of pictures that people take. Yeah. Um, so the next time we we would analyze the data, I think we'll try to use the the artificial intelligence algorithm. Yeah. Um, but like I said, it probably has the same limitations as the human validators have, except that. Yeah. Uh, it can it can handle a much larger number of data right yeah i for um one of the other guests on on last season of the podcast was eric rawls the founder and ceo of plant snap mm -hmm. and um and he told me that on average um, plant snap uses about 300 images per plant species uh for their algorithm to to feel like it's at a 90 percent accuracy mm -hmm. So that 19, gives you an yeah, idea yeah. of, uh, you know, what, you know, with, and that's, that's 300 images. And then indeed, you know, taken from different angles, different mm -hmm. colors, you know, cause I think yeah. that's, that's something that you forget. You know, we, we, we think about, you know, everyone's taken an absolutely beautiful, well-lit photo and that's oftentimes not the case. So you're, you know, both the human expert as well as the AI needs to be quite robust in its ability yeah. to, you know, be able to to take all those different parameters into account as well. So, yeah, it's it's easier said than done, but but we're definitely making huge strides to get there. Definitely, and I'm I must say I'm I'm amazed at the ability of these algorithms to recognize pretty difficult species. So in yeah. in, in ops identify, you know, the the moths, ladybird beetles. 
um, of course, birds and plants, those are almost, you know, identified flawlessly. Um, yeah. Much, much better than than any human could could do for all those groups at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, I think everybody in the field has been amazed by by the progress that was that was possible with this and and the uh, the accuracy at which these algorithms can work, provided they have been trained with a proper set of, of images. Um, yeah. So I guess once um, those those types of organisms for which the number of images was insufficient so far, once those groups have been also filled, then probably the algorithm can identify anything that a human expert could would also be able yeah. to identify, or actually a whole a whole country full of experts, because not not a single person can ever identify everything. For sure, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's definitely a case of where quantity wins, because the more the more images we have, the better it can be trained. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What um what advice would you would you give to um to citizens looking to get more involved with urban nature? In this in this conversation and and in any conversation about urban nature, we tend to focus on public public nature. Um, but we forget that in most cities there, there's at least as as large a surface area of private urban nature, of balconies and 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 gardens and uh, you know roof gardens and and all kinds of bits of vegetation that yeah. are maintained not by the authorities but by private individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's much easier to make progress in nature-inclusive garden management than it is in nature-inclusive park or street management. Um, so as individuals, collectively, we can probably even make a big, bigger impact on urban biodiversity as a whole yeah. by focusing on those areas over which we have absolute control, namely those private uh, private areas, our gardens and our, our balconies. Um, and to do the same that I was advocating initially uh, namely, provide more vegetation, allow it to be a bit wilder and messier than perhaps tradition would would um, would dictate. Yeah. Um, because it all contributes to the entire biodiversity in the city, especially with with movable animals, insects that forage in your yeah. in your in your uh, on your balcony will be foraging an hour later in 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 the big city parks. And yeah, they don't they don't care about the public public private no. boundary. No. So that might be a good place to start. And the things you learn in your own garden, you could then apply collectively in you know community groups that that help to manage a public green space in in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's great advice and it it feels very tangible, you know. Everybody, if they don't have a backyard, maybe they have a balcony and even just a windowsill. I mean, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that the individual can do in that sense. Yeah, um, the windowsill could be a, a cafeteria, basically, for a large number yeah. of insects that are yeah. just passing by, feeding on your flowers, and moving on. But you really yeah. contribute. Yeah. No, that's a nice way to look at it. A cafeteria for uh, for passing insects. Um, and the last question that I want to ask you, Meno, that I ask um, all of my guests that come on the show is, what does the Internet of Nature mean to you? Right. Um, well, I think th- th- the first thing I would think of when you're talking about technology-based um, connectivity, 
either in information or in the urban ecosystem itself would be the things we talked about in terms of, of citizen science-based monitoring of, um, of biodiversity. So I think, you know, cities are full of people by definition. Um, and even if only a small fraction of those people are interested in, in urban nature, if they all carry their smartphone and take pictures, um, upload those pictures to a citizen science platform like iNaturalist or Observado, um, we are really getting a, a huge amount of data on the distribution of, um, of animals and plants in cities. And that will help us to realize, first of all, to realize how rich in biodiversity the city is. Uh, it will also allow research to be done, for example, on urban evolution, because those pictures mm -hmm. will also contain information on colors and shapes of, uh, and flowering times and breeding times of, um, of animals and plants, which, which are all subject to evolution if they are genetically based. Um, and it will allow us to monitor or will allow the authorities to monitor the biodiversity and the biodiversity distribution in the city and right. to, to act on that, to, to, for example, to be notified of a rare species growing somewhere, uh, a rare orchid in a roadside verge, which maybe they could then decide not to mow, for example. Right. Um, that to me, I think, would be one of the benefits of an internet of nature in the city. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And it feels something, um, I think that feels very comforting to a lot of people because it feels like mm -hmm. there is something that they can do, especially yeah. in this age yeah. of uh, eco-anxiety and, and, and climate crisis. I think people mm -hmm. are searching for ways that, that, that they can feel like they can have meaningful impact. Yeah. And this is definitely one way to do it, not just for yourself by being able to educate yourself on what's surrounding you, but also to know that you're contributing to this much larger community of researchers mm -hmm. and citizen science that are working against these issues. I think that's a, a beautiful place to end it. So thank you for coming I think on. So You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a fun interview. I really enjoyed that conversation with Menno, and I hope you did too. If you did, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast now and leave us a review. We really appreciate it. We'll be back next week with Dr. Andrew Hirons, who has both climbed trees for a living and now studies what trees can grow best where. Andy and I have collaborated lots over the last year, so it's sure to be a fun episode. Don't miss it. In the meantime, check out taxonexpeditions.com to see if a biodiversity expedition is being organized near you. In just six taxon expeditions, Menno and his team of citizen scientists have already identified 19 species. Check it out. Thank you for listening to the Internet of Nature podcast. This show was produced by Studio Nordgestort.